All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Let us read verses 25 to 32 together. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. I pray the Lord bless the reading of his word. You know, as I go through this fourth chapter and I spend time with each one of these exhortations, there's sufficient truth in each individual exhortation that I feel that we need to take the time to look at each one individually. I don't want to rush through them because there's so much in each one that I believe could benefit us spiritually as a church, but Paul emphasizes the importance of it affecting the entire body of believers. And so I hope and pray that we will have the patience to go through each one of these exhortations because they are greatly significant in our endeavoring to keep the unity of the peace of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so I pray the Lord would continue to bless us. I want you to look back at verse 20 and 21 so that we can kind of look again at the foundation of what Paul is saying here. He says, but you have not so learned Christ, if so be, if you've heard of him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off, and he goes on. These words of the Apostle Paul, when you look at them, they're very encouraging and yet very sobering if you consider them seriously. For with these words, he would imply that though one may profess to have learned of Christ, it is possible with his wording that they have never truly heard and been taught by Christ. If so be, he emphasizes in verse 21, Say not that we have learned of Christ if our lives and our conduct attest not to our having truly heard Him and been taught by Him. That's what Paul is saying. Don't say you've learned of Him if your lives, your conduct, your character does not attest to you having heard Him and been taught by Him. Learning and being taught are two good things taught not by men, but by Christ. And I hope and pray that we all understand and believe when Paul's talking about hearing Christ and being taught by Him and learning of Him, it's not Christ actually verbally coming down and speaking to you, but as the Bible speaks the language of Scripture, it's by preaching more than ever, but by preaching and by Scripture is how God Christ teaches us and how we hear it's not by men. Men don't teach these things. Christ must teach these things. For many follow the convictions and opinions of men, yet not the truth which is alone in Christ. 
And I think this is important for us to understand as we continue looking at each one of these exhortations that these are things not taught by men, but they're taught by Christ. They're evidences of us learning truly of Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I weary of those that put good works to the side. They ignore them. They kind of think little of them. They're, they're not significant. I'm telling you, good works are significant. It's under good works that we've been created. And the evidence of our truly learning of Christ is good works, attesting to those lessons taught by Christ. Get ahead of myself, but remember last week and John when the Lord said that you might believe me by my works. And James says the same thing. Boast not of having faith. If you don't have works to evidence that faith in God. Someone asked me this last week about someone having faith. And I said, well, anybody, faith is a general statement. Satan, the devil, has faith, James says, and trembles. He believes in God. Not a true saving faith, but the devil believes in God and trembles. It has nothing to say. You... Your life, our conduct, our character is what manifests or evidences or verifies or testifies, attests to our truly learning of Christ. It's amazing when men learn of men, their lives are totally opposite to what the Scripture declares our lives to be when we've learned of Christ, if you follow my train of thought. Over the years, I've seen men be persuaded of other men's opinions and persuasions and their lives are totally contrary to what the Scripture declares lives should be when you're taught of Christ. They're more contentious and combative and argumentative. Whereas when we learn of Christ, if you remember what Paul and Peter talks about, the meekness or the wisdom from above is first meek and gentle and kind. And, and there's, a, there's a fruit to wisdom when it's taught of Christ. So I'm kind of weary of those who demeanor or put down good works as though they're not significant, they're not important, that it's all in your theological understanding. I'm sure you've seen it too, but many times we see people who profess to know Christ and they boast of great knowledge of the things of Christ and yet their their conduct, their character, their walk is contrary to those who have been taught of Christ, what Scripture declares when we're taught of Christ. For if we've truly been taught by Christ, the divine evidence will be manifested by our putting on the new man, Paul says, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's, that's, the, that's the fruit. That's the evidence of our truly learning of Christ is putting on this new man. Not the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, but putting on the new man. I've quoted him before, and I do not weary because I, I, I believe thoroughly in what he said. Henry Skugel, if you've never heard of him, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Some pronounce it different, but he wrote in his book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, he said the following, and it's very true of every generation. He says, and I quote, I cannot speak of religion, he said, but I must lament that some that among so many pretenders to it, so few understand what it means. He goes on to say, some placing it in the understanding, in orthodox notions and opinions. And all the account they can give of the religion is that they are of this or the other persuasion. I am Apollos, I am Paul, I am Cephas. 
Others, he said, placed it in the outward man in a constant course of external duties. Others, again, put all religion in the affections and rapturous heats and ecstatic devotion. In other words, all they desire to do is be emotionally, affectionately stirred. But he goes on to say, but certainly religion is quite another thing. I'm talking about true Christianity. People have a problem with that word religion today, which I don't. He's speaking about true Christianity. But he said, but certainly religion is quite another thing. And they who are acquainted with it will entertain far different thoughts and disdain all those shadows and false imitations of it. Love how he quoted that. He goes on to say, and I'll end it here, they know by experience that true religion is a union of the soul with God, a real participation of the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul, or in the apostle's phrase, it is Christ formed within us, end of quote. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, by putting on the new man, verse 28 and 29, wherefore, let him that stole steal no more. It's the eighth commandment. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good, twice he says, which is good, to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. I'm getting ahead of myself, but do you realize the emphasis in both these verses are in being a blessing to others and not being so selfish? Don't steal work that you can help others who have needs. Don't have filthy communication, but good, so that you might minister grace. It's all about others, not yourself. Ahead of myself when I say that, but that's what he's talking about. Again, these exhortations have much to do with our endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul's still dealing with that unity of believers. And this kind of life stems out of our putting on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. This is evidence of our truly learning of Christ. Notice how both exhortations involve our putting off of the old man, which is corrupt. Let him that stole steal no more. That's the old man. You're still putting off. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. You're putting off. But also there's a putting on. Working with his hands, the things which are good, you're putting on. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that he might minister grace unto others. So you see, even in these exhortations, there's a putting off of the old man and a putting on of the new. These are the things that were taught of by Christ. Both are for the good or edification of others. This is important to understand. Both of these exhortations are for the good and edification of others that he may give to him that needeth. Don't steal anymore, but labor with your hands in something that's good, and that is what's good, a good job. Why? Why should you labor? So you can provide for yourself? No, that you might give to the needs of others. Oh, let's not put works where they don't need to be. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in God's sovereignty and sovereign grace that we think any mention of works 
is defying God's grace. Hogwash, nonsense. Paul says, I want you to stop stealing so that you can labor with your hands in a good thing, not to benefit yourself, but that you might give to the needs of others. I want you to stop corrupt communication, but start speaking good. Why? So that you might minister grace to others. It's always for others. Amazing how that works when Christ teaches. It it has much to do with our endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but most of the time, 90% of the time, when the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is broke, it's because of selfishness. It's because people are putting themselves first and not others. They're more concerned about themselves and their opinions and their convictions. And I'm not saying we should do away with true convictions. I'm simply saying we don't take back and consider what we're doing. How can I, how can I benefit? How can I endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? In fact, all these exhortations from verses 25 to 32 speak of our putting away or letting go any and all selfish and sinful practices for the edification and well-being of others, not for ourselves. All these exhortations. They have a mind to getting rid of self and benefiting, benefiting others. Let's read a few verses on that same line of thought. I do that every Sunday, don't I? I'll take the lid off. <clears throat> Romans 15.2 says this, and I quote, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. What a change it would be amongst God's people if we practiced that more in our lives. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Romans 14.19 says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Again, edifying another. Edification of others. 1 Corinthians 10.24, Paul says, Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Now, that's not merely, solely, and I'm not even sure it's talking about finances, but spiritual wealth. Don't be so selfish of yourself, but every man another's wealth. Seek your brother's spiritual wealth. It's amazing, we were talking about that earlier, about the worship and how we gather together and we can, everybody kind of participates in the worship service and we kind of benefit one another. It's amazing that when Christ teaches us something according to the text here in Ephesians 4, it's always or almost always in this, this text, never about ourselves, but what we can do for others. And I'm again, I'm getting ahead of myself and I really don't want to do that, but I'm, I'm afraid... Many people who take the sovereign grace of God to extreme do completely away with any kind of works. That as soon as you speak of works, you're speaking about, oh, work salvation or trying to merit God's favor as a Christian. No, works are vital to Christianity. Being beneficial, benevolence to other people, edifying others, helping your neighbor, loving one another is Christianity. It's not defying God's sovereign grace. It's proving we understand God's sovereign grace. For God, the goodness of God shineth upon the evil and the just. Right? The sun rises on the evil and the just. He sendeth rain. God's common grace is good to all men. 
So why do we think that if they're not Christians, we can treat them all like heathens? It's amazing how that pendulum keeps coming back in our conversations. Look not every man on his own things, Philippians 2, 4, and 5. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. See, the mind we're supposed to be, or have, or possess, is not what others have, but what Christ has. And he goes on that text to say, because he became poor, that we might be rich. He became a servant, so we might reign. Christ became poor, that we might be made rich. Paul's encouraging us here with these exhortations, here even in 28 and 29 of Ephesians 4, he's encouraging us how we can endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The psalmist, again, said, blessed is the best. He said, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Again, the wording, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell. Sometimes we read over things too quickly. The emphasis on dwelling, not temporal peace. A lot of churches have temporal peace. The key to knowing what is good or experiencing what is good and pleasant is in we learn how to dwell, not temporary. Oh, we're going good now. Two months later down the road, it's different. No, it's only as we dwell, abide, not temporary, not short-term. It's only as we dwell together in unity that we shall come to know, the psalmist says, how good and how pleasant such unity is. The goodness and pleasantness of unity is experienced in dwelling in it, maintaining it, persevering in it, keeping it, endeavoring to keep it. That's when we find out the true blessings of unity. And churches today are so prone not to understand that. That's why we have so many church divisions and schisms. and They don't understand the unity which Paul is emphasizing, the endeavoring to keep the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. They don't understand the biblical principle, the thing that Christ teaches his children about unity. seems we always find something to disagree on. We always find something to divide over. We always find something. You, as, 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 as people, as human beings, even as Christians, we can always find something to disagree on. Read scriptures. It happens in almost every church Paul writes to. There was something that was not right. Paul still says that doesn't matter. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. I'm not talking about false doctrine. I hope and pray that we're all on one page with that. But there's going to be differences. There's going to be opinions that differ. It's those who learn how to dwell in unity are the ones that understand and enjoy and are enriched by the goodness and pleasures of it because they know how difficult, they know the labor it takes to keep that. And when you labor for something, you cherish it much more. People walk into churches and think everybody should immediately have the same opinion. And then they get so disappointed because they're not. You're never going to find a place that's going to be perfectly in, in line with your train of thought. There's going to be some variance there somewhere. Ephesians 4, 
Let him that stole steal no more. It's the Eighth Commandment. I always wondered, I've been wondering anyway this last week, why he didn't use another commandment like adultery or coveting your neighbor's stuff. He used the Eighth Commandment, don't steal. Why does he pick this one out? Well, I, I believe that Paul, with these words, implies more than a simple theft or stealing from others' goods. Because the word stealing actually implies craftiness, malice, subtlety, which the thief exercises in taking others' goods. In other words, it's the state of his heart and mind. A thief does that because he's crafty, because he's full of malice, because he's subtle. He deceives. And I think Paul's containing, containing all of that in this word. Don't be like a thief. I'm sure he's actually talking about actual stealing as well. But don't be a thief. Don't be malicious. Don't be crafty. Don't be subtle in trying to take other people's goods. And that's in all things, whether it's a man's character, whether it's a man's possessions. In other words, he would have wealth without labor. Sounds like our present administration, don't it? Yeah, let me read something that was interesting that Lloyd-Jones said back in 1980, around 1980. This is what he says here. Very, very interesting when I came across it. He said, and I quote, a society, a country, a world which begins to despise labor and effort is proclaiming that it is godless. Sounds like our present White House, doesn't it? Any failure to realize the dignity of work proclaims the same thing. The whole notion of obtaining the maximum and giving of doing the minimum is utterly irreligious. It is profoundly unchristian. As a country becomes more and more godless and irreligious, he says, it becomes more and more lazy in every level of society. We knew our society was godless. But oh, how those words that Lloyd-Jones are coming so true 40 years later. As a matter of fact, you know, he goes on to say and to prove by, by facts that during, and I never realized this reading church history, but he also stated that, that during, during and after every revival, great revival in church history, there was a diligence of labor and working. People went to work. Why? Christians understand the dignity of labor, of working. And I believe that's why Paul emphasizes this. He that stole, steal no more, but rather let him labor. A Christian understands the dignity of work. We understand the Lord said, you sweat and labor six days a week, and you rest on the seventh. He's not only a thief, but slothful. Proverbs said, the slothful shall be under tribute. In other words, they live by dishonesty and shiftiness. What more could devastate or ruin or weaken our endeavors to keep the unity of spirit than when you have a Christian that is a thief or malicious or crafty, lazy, slothful? Proverbs 18 said, he's a brother to him that is of great waster. So Paul, in mentioning stealing... Mention something that could greatly attribute to defeating our endeavors to keep the unity of the Spirit when a brother is lazy, slothful, crafty, malicious, seeking to be wealthy without labor. 
it's amazing how this uh, just bear with me for a minute but it's amazing how this new generation has little respect for labor in my generation people worked they labored and my generation of people and not saying anything of your younger generation than mine but my generation of people most of them understood what it was to work and labor nowadays people want money they want wealth without laboring it can be a hindrance paul says yet why would the apostle paul exhort such a one to steal no more but rather let her labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to them that needeth Look at verse 28 again. I'm going to read this again real slowly. I want you to catch what he's saying here because there's there's an old divine truth here that I think we've missed in this new generation and something which a lot of even newer Christians probably would disagree with even though it's clearly in this verse. Look in this. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor. Labor is, is sweat. It's not just work. Let him sweat. Let him put in a good hard day work. Okay? But watch what he says, working with his hands, the thing which is good. Now, what does he mean by the thing which is good? He doesn't stop after that. There's a comma. And we need to understand the whole context to understand what he means by which is good. Why? That he may give to him that needeth. In other words, Paul is specifically saying, seek, I'm German after so many years, seek an employment, a labor, that is good in helping others. That's what he's saying. He said, labor with his hands the thing which is good, a good labor, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Now, I know a lot of times in my life I didn't have a choice of what I had to work. A job was open, I took it. But Paul is basically saying as Christians, we, would, we, should, we should seek a labor which benefits others and gives us enough to help others' needs. It should be a good job. And again, like I said, I'm not saying this is specifically, and a lot of people will misinterpret that, saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, that means we've got to be specific in our jobs. Christians were in the past. Specific about what jobs they took. Let me ask you a question, just for an example. Would you drive a beer truck? Would you work in a bar? Christians used to seek employment that was a good employment because it was their reputation. And they wanted to be able to be a testimony. I know this is old school, but that's what Paul's saying. That which is good. A good employment. Why? That you can benefit yourself? He says no. That he may have to give to him that needeth. In other words, your goal in laboring or your employment should not be for yourself, but that you might be able to give to him that needeth. Now, I know that we could keep the reference here in our text, and some might do that, to where, well, he's talking about the elect. Well, I think Paul is speaking in general terms when he says, give to him that needeth. 
we have so separated Christian benevolence from God's grace that we don't believe in it anymore. And that's sad. The church have always shown benevolence in what they do. Yes, the goal being salvation of souls. Yes, the goal being the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they never forsook good benevolence. The great commandment, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, oh, here we go. We're talking about only the Christians. Well, are we? We have gotten so far away from good works and Christian benevolence that most Christians don't know how to practice that. And I believe in doing so, the church has suffered much. Christ himself said it when he said, but do not forget the poor. Proverbs has a lot about helping the poor. Benevolence, benevolence was something that used to characterize the church. Not like Catholic Church other, or false denominations who see merit, they see, they see it different, that they can gain God's favor, not in that in any force, any way, any manner, any fashion. But benevolence. I read this and I personally I thank God for the secular job that he led me to in a nursing home. You know the joy I get from simply helping out these people in my efforts to preach the gospel? One man in our home won't mention him because the sermon goes public, but one man in our home is big, big man. Mind of a five-year-old. Just He's just a great guy loves peanut butter and liverwurst doesn't need them together but he loves peanut butter and liverwurst they don't get in the home so occasionally i'll go buy him a jar of peanut butter this week i got him some liverwurst and they're bringing a and i give it to him and the joy that wells up in his eyes and his face acts of kindness and benevolence I'm not trying to toot a horn, do not forget, do not misunderstand me. Christians have lost that virtue, act of benevolence. I'm not saying that it's, it replaces the gospel. I'm not saying that it makes the gospel irrelevant. It doesn't hinder the gospel. Where, where's our faith in the sovereignty of God? Yes, it's the gospel that saves. But why have we separated benevolence from Christianity when it belongs there? Let him steal no more but let him labor with his hands and that which is good that he might have to give to them that need us. There's something spiritually healthy about being benevolent towards everyone, not simply those of the house of faith. It's a divine truth which over the years, I believe, has been all but lost as mankind or the world becomes more selfish and self-centered. 
Christians become so theological, they forget the practical. One example is George Whitfield traveled around the, actually the globe between England and America, doing what? Raising money for orphans to help orphans. He greatly used to help orphans. He felt called that that was something God would have him to do. And so he went around, he preached, and he collected for an orphanage in America, in Georgia, that he could support the orphanage. Henry Martin, missionary to China, and many other missionaries would go to deprived nations where poverty excelled. And in their efforts of preaching the gospel, they'd show benevolence. Why do we feel the gospel and benevolence are contradictory? They're not. Benevolence doesn't increase the power of the gospel. But it proves we know what the gospel is. We're in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, appeared to all men, teaching us, now here it is, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Okay, there's the effects of the gospel. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God, of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Amen. And purify unto himself a peculiar people. Amen. We're elect. Zealous of good works. See, we forget that last part. We're ready to fight to the end for the, the former. We forget the last part. Zealous of good works. These things speak, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no, no man despise thee. These things speak, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Over in Titus chapter 3. Look in verse 4 and 8. 428 I'm sorry but after that the loving kindness and love but after the kindness and love of God our savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness there it is which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the holy spirit so far so good which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our savior sounds great why that being justified by his grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. So you see, if we understand the sovereign grace of God, we understand salvation in Christ, we understand and we're taught of Christ, he says, maintain, be careful to maintain good work. Why does he say be careful? Why does the previous one be zealous? Because we tend to kind of get slothful in that area. Maintain good works. Be zealous of good works. 
We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Let me wind this down to close in First Peter chapter 2. I want you to see this. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Now let's just do 11. Dear the beloved, I beseech you, strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Conversation honest. That's not just our, our talk. That's the way we walk, our life. Let's be honest. Let me stop right there for a minute. We should be well known on the job for being Christians. And I'm not just saying portraying the gospel. I mean, because we're on time, we do our job, we're faithful, we're obedient, we're responsible. Christian character. Now, with that said, let me say this as well. If you're paid to be on the clock to work, you want to be careful that you don't go beyond that and get to preaching the gospel when you're being paid on the clock. Don't misunderstand me. We take efforts to do that, but you're being paid. You need to be careful that you honor your responsibility and obligations to your employer. Okay? Christians sometimes get an imbalance in that, so be careful with that. Having your own uh, conversation honest amongst Gentiles, that, now watch this, why? Whereas they speak against you as evildoers, evildoers, not evil speakers, evildoers, they're claiming you're doing something bad. How do, you, how do you fight against that? What do you do? What's your defense against that? They may, by your good works, there it is again, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. What's that mean? Well, on the day of visitation, when the day of judgment comes and sinners are judged, our good works also that was presented before them will be used by God to condemn them for their actions. Just like the preaching of the gospel, you preach it to everyone. You preach it to all creatures. It shall either call them, which God sovereignly does, or one day when we all stand before God or they stand before God, that same gospel shall rise up to condemn them. So it'll either, Paul says it's the savior of life unto life to some, savior of death unto death unto others. So you preach it to all men. You let God do the calling, but the gospel will either save them by the power of God, or it will one day, in judgment, rise up and condemn them. Our good works will also attribute to their condemnation. So you see, God sovereignly knows what he's doing in all things, but it's important that we understand what Paul is emphasizing here in Ephesians concerning the, our endeavors to keep the unity of the Spirit. And that's why he said, let him steal, him that stole, steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, a good job, a good, a good uh, uh, work. Why? That he may have to give to him that needeth. Isn't that amazing? Not for himself, but that he might give to somebody else. That's the reason why I want you to labor, give somebody else. Benevolence. Let no communication, we'll look at next week, no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. Why? That it may minister grace into the hearers. Again, that you can minister grace. It's, it's always about others, isn't it? It's amazing. And I close with what verse we quoted last week of, John, of Christ in John 10. If I do not the works of my Father, 
believe me not. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. So you see, dear beloved, Paul's exhortations in Ephesians 4 are to help us to in, in our endeavors to keep the unity of spirit. There's always a putting off and a putting on. May we never shy away from benevolence. That's part of Christianity. We know that anything we do cannot attribute to the gospel. It's the only thing that's powerful enough to save sinners. But that doesn't exclude us as Christians from being zealous of good works and benevolence and kindness towards all mankind, especially the household of faith, but towards all mankind. May God give us grace to maintain that balance and get off that pendulum that goes back and forth. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this verse. We pray that, Lord, it would, Lord, encourage us, excite us, convict us, that, Lord, we might, by your grace, truly be taught of Christ, and that, Lord, these things might be evident in our lives. Father, our good works can never, ever attribute anything to the gospel of the salvation of men's souls. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only power of God unto salvation. And yet, Father, you've told us and commanded us to be lights in the darkened world. And as your sun rises and sets on the wicked and on the just, and as you send rain on both the wicked and the just, because you're good in yourself, your essence is good, I pray that you'd help us as Christians to realize and understand the importance of being zealous of good works. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our lives, Father. Lord, use this church and this community to be a light. Lord, I pray that this light would reflect Jesus Christ. And as we do, I pray that, Father, you'd give us the ability to preach the gospel. And, Lord, may it go out in power, converting and saving the souls of men, women, and children that has been called from the foundations of the world. Father, we trust and believe in you. We ask now your blessings in Christ's name. Amen.